Welcome to Alindal's Choice, a podcast where we explore the arts of living and the real-world challenges that make living your best life a real difficulty. I'm your host, Team Alindal, and today we're going to talk about why I'm doing this podcast. An origination story, as you might say, as, as like you would say in the movies. You may wonder how I got here, <laughs> like a superhero stories. In reality, everyone has major pillars that help define who they are as a person. For me, there are four of them. Family and friends is one, and and this is probably true for everybody. It's amazing how much we're defined by who we're friends with, who we meet in life. And what really kills me is how much of that is just defined by pure chance. Your friends come from where you go to school and just the connections you make there, the random connections you make throughout life, finding a spouse. There's a tremendous amount of randomness in that. And it's amazing because all these connections you make with people, they're what really help define who you are. But for me, there are also the fact that I'm a techie, a geek, a nerd. There's the fact that I played sports and coach sports. And then as I became later in life, more of a philosopher, uh, kind of the spiritual aspect, so to speak. It's unfortunate that the philosophical side of me came out later in life because that's some of the more important things to know as a kid. But then again, if we knew them as a kid, we wouldn't have any place for wisdom. <laughs> I wanted to focus this podcast on these last three pillars and they how they led me to the creation of this podcast and help me explain what this podcast is going to be about on a week-to-week basis. Let's start with technology. Is Take a stroll down amnesia lane. <laughs> Oh, technology has changed over the years. My first exposure to technology computing came from two areas. One was the Atari console. Nowadays, I watch my son play on his PlayStation 5, and I I have to laugh at the primitive console I had as a child. (laughs) When I was young, the Atari, I remember when it came out. I remember when I got it. It was the greatest thing ever. And the games, let's be honest, they were terrible. It was pixel art at best. I remember basketball probably being the worst example of this. The basketball was nothing more than a a block cursor, and your character was just a series of these block cursors. The the wrist would go back and forth, and the ball would go flying in the air. (laughs) And you can make full-court shots, not in the air of the swish, but you could bounce it off the ground, and it would go into the basket. It was terrible. Oh, man. But one of the big problems I had as a kid, though, with the Atari was I needed single-player games. I was, at the point, an only child. My sister wouldn't come until I was a little bit older, at least in a position where she could play games. And there was no such thing as the Internet back then. <laughs> there was no way to really hook up with your friends and play casually at any point in time. They'd have to like actually come over, which wasn't some type of everyday occurrence. I remember playing Pitfall. That was one of the specific ones. And that was this great adventure game. This came out about the same time as like Indiana Jones. It was very similar. You're this adventurer who was running around in the jungle, I guess, and you would (laughs) jump over rolling logs. You would go over lakes. There was like a little vine that would swing back and forth and you would connect to it and you would swing over. There was like alligators you could kind of jump on their heads. It was so bad. But it was so addicting at the time. It was it was a game you could play and engage with and you didn't have to use your 
imagination to make it work. It was first interactive experience. I also remember playing a ton of decathlon because, again, it was a sport you could play by yourself. Your score was determined based on how you did on each event. And I remember playing that a ton. This technology, though, was just so primitive. I mean, nowadays, as a, a gag gift, you can buy, what was it, basically a little a joystick, Atari-like joystick, and it has like 30 or 40 games on it that you could hook into your TV. You know, at the time, each game was separate. <laughs> They were, they came in little cartridges that you'd plug in. It was quite the adventure, and the games were so primitive, especially compared to nowadays. It was amazing how far we've gone. But at the time, it began my enjoyment of gaming, computer gaming, back as early as fourth, fifth grade when I got the Atari system. Now, the more consequential, long-term technology I was exposed to at a young age was my Commodore 64. It was a 60 ki 64 kilobyte beast of a machine. 64 kilobyte. <laughs> so you have kilobytes, you have megabytes, and then you have gigabytes, each one being a, a significant power greater than the other, 1,024 to be specific. In today's phones, you have gigabytes. Back then, I had 64 kilobytes. What a beast of a machine. It hooked up to your television. It had a little adapter so you could plug into the antenna on your television. It had a keyboard built in. It was it was quite the beast. There was no hard drive, so there was no storing anything. You had to have, buy external storage mechanisms. I remember the first one I had was a tape drive, and that was painful, as one might expect. You could hit record, and it would right out to that and if you wanted to load that back up you'd have to hit play <laughs> it would load into the computer you had to know exactly where you were on the tape <laughs> it was terrible eventually i was able to convince my parents to get a floppy five and a quarter inch floppy and these were great because the only thing that separated the floppies was a little hole in them uh, single-sided and double-sided so you buy single-sided get a hole puncher, punch a hole in it, now all of a sudden you had double-sided drives, which doubled the storage. I don't even remember how much 128K could go on a floppy. Not very much. Uh, the When the computer booted up, it booted up to a, a ready prompt, and you could basically type in basic commands. It was, I guess, uh, Bill Gates' programming language. You'd, if you wanted to, But at the same time, you could like load games. I could say load such and such, and it would go to the drive and load a game. Otherwise, I had to learn programming, and I did teach myself programming. Well, at the time I was in eighth grade, I was writing relatively complex applications. I was writing simple games for myself. I was beginning to do graphic manipulation. I remember Commodore 64 had sprites. A sprite was a 16 by 16 pixel element that you could then move seamlessly across the stream the screen it wasn't like a pixelated redraw the screen it would actually move itself on top of whatever you had as a background man it was quite the adventure i really didn't know what i was doing commodore 64 had these terms called peak and poke as i am older and looking back i, I know what's going on here now poke was your ability to write something into specific memory and peak was your ability to read that value back out of memory all I knew is that I could set values in memory to do things. Like you could set the color of the back screen. You could set the color of your cursor. You could create stuff by poking things into various memory locations in the Commodore 64 environment. At the time, it was, it was a 
one of my addictions was was learning to program. And I remember going and buying magazines that, <laughs> with programs in it and typing them in. God, I can't believe I did that. I would actually type in pages and pages of code to play some type of game. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. Uh, at the time, it never even occurred to me that this would be a major portion of my career. It was just me obsessing over something. And when high school came along, I completely lost interest in computer. Other areas, as one might imagine, high school captured my focus. I pretty much walked away. I didn't, I didn't do it anymore. I didn't write programs. I didn't play a lot of games even. You know, I never dreamed it would come back to be a career path for me. But then college came around. I'm not sure. I'm sure it wouldn't come as a surprise to those who are listening and, and especially know me. That my favorite subject in high school was physics. Physics involved math. I always loved doing math. It was kind of real world. I will never forget the distance equations, the velocity equations, the acceleration equation you'd have. And you could predict how far something would travel or how it would fall, how fast it would fall. That to me was fascinating. You could describe real world actions in a mathematical formula. That was cool. I know it was I mean, physics in high school and even physics in college is kind of idealistic. There's a lot of real-world elements that aren't taken into account. At the same time, it does a good job of defining those actions and interactions in the real world. I found myself wanting to become a mechanical engineer. I spent time looking for mechanical engineering schools, looking for the different ones, and that's its own story of me searching for a school, which we'll let go. But I, I, I ended up in college. I was studying for mechanical engineer for three years when I was at UofL. One of the things that UofL speed school requires, at least back then, was three co-ops to graduate. A co-op was a semester where you would work in a company and learn real life skills the real value here was it would give you kind of the foot in the door to get a job after college. I ended up co-oping at Lexmark in Lexington, Kentucky. I was in a call center. <laughs> we were doing call tech support. It's interesting they were getting college kids to do tech support. Most of this is now farmed out offshores. They had a bunch of us college kids, which I guess at the time was smart because technology was still in its infancy. The younger kids would have been more exposed to technology and, and have an easier time working with technology. And I ended up in a call center solving printer problems that people would have trying to print. There's software problems, there's hardware problems. They would all find their way up to the call center and you'd answer them and try to solve their problems for them. This is one of those times where life is funny. I had a cube partner who was a huge computer guy. Me, I really hadn't touched a computer since high school or heck grade school my Commodore 64. I think I even still had the Commodore 64. He taught me how to type. He didn't really teach me how to type. He taught me kind of where the fingers went, where the basics of typing, the, the concepts, where, where the fingers go, which fingers you use to hit which keys. And then I basically taught myself how to type from there. But he's the one who introduced me to typing and, and got me to learn <laughs> typing. He also taught me a ton about computers. He's the one who kind of got me into wanting to build computers. 
Uh, this was now, we've gone from my Commodore 64 up to X486 architecture. For those who've been around for a while, remember the 486 PCs. So I, I skipped all the really bad, bad computers, and we started moving into more computer technology. I went from the Commodore 64 to Windows 3.1, and I kind of came addicted to it again. I, the idea of programming was fun. The idea of working with computers on a day-to-day -day basis was fun. I found myself uh, switching majors. I switched from mechanical engineering into what Speed School called engineering math and mathematics and computer science. It was what I would call basically computer engineering. It was a mix of computer science, programming, databases, compiler design, along with a lot of electrical engineering classes on designing computer chips, designing, and, and I remember hooking up <laughs> computer chip to a breadboard, taking the wires and running them to memory and, and, and running very simple assembler level code on, on these devices. That was been my major. At the time, another one of those chance things that happen in your life that end up defining a big chunk of your life. I was, again, at speed school at University of Louisville, and their primary computer system was HP Unix. I hated HP Unix when I was in ME. I had very little experience with, win with computers. The only thing I had really was kind of the Windows experience where I'd learned the x86, 486. I'd gotten a my own computer, and I hated Unix. It didn't make any sense. I had gotten familiar with Windows. It was terrible. But as I spent time in computer science, I began to learn it and use it as a, as a system. Because you could only access it on campus, again, there was really no internet at the time, I got a job in the computer lab, which gave me the golden key card, which was 24-7 access to the system. And I used the heck out of this. Not only did I work there a lot, but I would be there at 2 or 3 in the morning when the lab would normally close at 11. It was uh, quite the... It allowed me access that I wouldn't normally have had, and I used it quite a bit. As I became more and more familiar with Unix, I, I really found I liked it. And we came across Linux. Linux is an open-source Unix operating system that was designed for PC architectures. That meant I could run it on my 486 computer. I, uh, I remember getting the 50 floppies. I don't know if we got them from like a book or if we, I don't know how we got the, the floppies. I, there were places to buy them out in the real world, but somehow I ended up with <laughs> the floppies to install the Linux operating system. And it's like back then, they had migrated from the five and a quarter inch floppies of the Commodore 64 to the three and a half, a little bit smaller, a little bit harder, a little less easy to damage, holds more data. But you still needed you know, 50 floppies to install anything. I remember having like Windows 3.1 and there was like 10 or 15 floppies with that. I was Microsoft Office had like 30 floppies as well. Linux, just like that, had its own floppies. And I got it installed. I fell in love with it. There were a number of us at Speed School who fell in love with Linux. We formed the Student Linux Users Group in the process. And it became the operating system I've ran on my PC from then to just a few years ago. For 20 plus years, Linux was my primary operating system on my desktop and on my servers. I mean, today my servers are all Linux. Uh, my laptop is Chromebook, which runs Linux. I uh, SSH in for all of my work. But I do have a PC now. I've, I've kind of gone back to the dark side. I need it to play games, things like Fortnite to play with my son. Uh, if I want to create videos, create 
different things, pay taxes. These are the type of utilities that run on Windows, and Linux doesn't always have great solutions for these things on the desktop. After graduating, I spent three years, three or four years as a Windows developer. I remember doing ASP. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. And I remember doing some C++ development. But for me, I saw Linux as a future powerhouse in business. A number of us from the uh, Student Linux Users Group, we founded N Plus One. There were four of us back in 2001. And I've, I've been a, we did administration, we did software development, and we did training on the Linux operating system. We modeled ourselves after kind of the Windows consulting companies. And we've been doing it, I've been doing it ever since. That's my pe technical pillar, where I came from. The second major pillar in my life is sports. As a kid, I love sports. Man, I played all the the major American sports, baseball, basketball, football. Um, I was decent at baseball. I could pitch. I could throw strikes, which is important at a young age. As you get older, you have to do more than that. I could field with the best. Basketball, I was okay. I was kind of midsize, which meant I could... I was okay at the game. Football, I was way undersized. <laughs> Wasn't very good at it, but I loved football. We played a lot of backyard football. Man, I remember playing base these sports by myself. I would learn to throw myself the football and, and create a game from it. Basketball, I had like limit the number of dribbles before you had to shoot so I could play 1v1 myself. Yeah, I was I used a wall and a tennis ball to practice baseball by myself. Again, I was kind of an only kid, so I didn't really have a lot of options. I had to use my creativity. I remember as a kid watching football and basketball. I was a huge NFL kid. NFL junkie when I was a young kid. I remember having a ton of Dallas Cowboy material and it got all kinds of information about football and records and all that stuff. If you wonder why I'm a Cowboys fan from Louisville, Kentucky, it's because the Cowboys were America's team at the time. They uh, were on all the time. They were the popular one. They were the ones being pushed by the media, so to speak. But I was, I was big in the NFL. I was also big into college basketball. Uh, being from Kentucky, it's really no surprise that College basketball was a huge part of the culture <laughs> of Kentucky. And in Louisville, Louisville-Kentucky rivalry was quite the rivalry. But I didn't always just pick the local team. For me, I picked teams because of coaches. I remember being a huge Landry fan of the Cowboys. I remember becoming a Florida State fan because of Bobby Bowden and his style of coaching and playing the game. Uh, Coach K for Duke. Uh, Val Vano for NC State. I'll never forget that championship run. I was cheering for NC State. I remember UofL and UK were going to be playing each other that year. and the, the battles in the playground between those two fan bases. And I'm like, go NC State! <laughs> and then they go on to win and, and one of the more miraculous finishes in college basketball was really cool when I was a kid. I also learned as a kid that I, I really wasn't very athletic to play these sports at a high level, yet alone like at a high school level. I mean, I was good at sports, but I wasn't great at sports. I was maybe a little bit on the plus side of the bell curve, but I was nowhere near that top 20% you need to be to, to be a really good player in any one sport. In freshman year, though, I really wasn't expecting to play sports. I remember trying track. I remember trying wrestling. I was terrible at both of them. But I came across something that would define the next few years of my life. I don't, I don't remember how or why my friends and I decided to play a round of golf at a local par three course, but we did. Myself and a couple friends, we were instantly hooked. 
And by hooked, I mean sucked in. We started playing all the time. When I said I lost an interest in computers, it wasn't just hormones that did that. I fell in love with golf and it dominated my high school life. We played on the par three courses for uh, about a month. And then my parents found out that they had park passes or a pass to play golf at the public golf courses in Louisville. You could play Monday through Friday as much as you want. You couldn't play on the weekends, which made sense. That's when they were when all the people generally played was on weekends and evenings. During the day, golf courses back in the eighties were not overrun like they are like they were later and in kind of the current time. Um, I remember Seneca Golf Course was right up the street from me and I would go up there and play a lot. I I don't remember how I talked to one of the assistant golf pros up there. I was trying to get like a locker, but they didn't have lockers. They've all been consumed. But he offered like, hey, why don't you just leave your clubs back behind our counter and whenever you come up, you can play. And I took him up for that. I remember riding my, I'd ride my bike up there, get my golf clubs, go out and play. And we did this every day. All my free time was dedicated to golf. I got decent. By the time I was a senior, I was able to make the team just barely by the skin of my teeth. In the fall, back then, golf was a spring sport. Now it's a fall sport. It made sense to be a fall sport. I don't know why it was ever a spring sport. Because that would have been the start of the golf season. You didn't play a ton in the winter. Having it as a fall sport made a lot of sense. You had been playing all summer, and then you have your tournament in the fall to determine state champion. But back then it wasn't. It was a spring. But I remember in the fall, those that were interested in the golf team would play in a little tournament. And I had made it all the way to the finals of that tournament. I was a decent golfer. I wasn't a great golfer. I was a decent golfer back then. I always shot like 39, plus or minus one or two strokes. If the better golfers were on, they beat me. If they were off, I beat them. Uh, I was able to work my way through this tournament by beating people. I remember one guy beat on chipped in on the ninth hole beat him he was a freshman he was he was upset about it he went on to become a really good player uh, but I remember beating him on that uh, I made it to the finals I lost in a playoff in the finals we went to like a 10th hole I lost in the 10th hole I then did the winter training because I did so well I remember the winter training lifting weights I never lifted weights I hated lifting weights the, the coach would then also bring us out to track and we'd run afterwards I, I remember this very specifically, I gave it my everything on running because why not? And I would finish, whatever, a couple laps, like way ahead of everybody else. I would finish just kind of like panting. And I remember it was the day of the cuts and the coach was like, you know, if you go there, you're not going to see your name on there. But, you know, because of all this hustle, you're going to make the, uh, you can be on the team. That was a huge life lesson of you give your everything, and, and good things will come your way. And so I, I did. That's how I made my team senior year. True story. After high school, I chose Maryland as my school, mainly because they had a golf course on campus. <laughs> that's how addicted to golf I was. Well, that and it being – well, what I did was I organized by top 10 or 15, I don't remember, engineering, mechanical engineering schools. I had them all listed out. We wouldn't visit a number of them. Maryland was the one that had a – golf course on campus. I remember Purdue had one on campus, but Purdue just cold. I was ignorant of the Maryland winters. That was my, that's on me. <laughs> I remember visiting Georgia Tech and back then Georgia Tech was in a pretty rundown neighborhood. Since then the Olympics rolled through a lot of that 
a lot of those bad neighborhoods were torn down and replaced by the, the much nicer environs that were necessary for an Olympics. And Georgia Tech has a much better campus for it, too. Um, I, I only lasted a year at Maryland. There's a lot of reasons for that I'm not going to go into now. And, but I played a lot of golf when I was in college. I'd gotten myself down to about a three handicap. You know, when I came back from Maryland, I even considered uh, becoming a golf pro, like moving down to like South Carolina, getting a part-time job on a golf course, working my way up to being a golf pro, maybe going to like a school like Clemson to finish my degree. But that really didn't happen. Uh, I remember having a particularly horrible round of golf, and I just kind of stopped playing for a couple months, which began kind of my slow departure from the game. You know, the reality of it was college, getting a job afterwards, the popularity of Tiger Woods made golf a lot more harder to get into. The advancements of technology made it easier to get tee times. I was, I was always used to just like, hey, I'll cut out of work on a day at like 3.30 or 4, go play a round of golf. You just couldn't do that anymore. And then when you did play, it would take flipping forever. I mean, everybody just was so enamored with Tiger Woods, and they played like him. And Tiger Woods is a very slow golfer, and all these people played very slow. And you just sit there and watch them looking at their putt, and I'm like, just putt it. You're going to miss it. And sure enough, they'd miss it. <laughs> oh, it was very frustrating. And I pretty much stopped playing when... Fate took another turn. There was a commercial late 90s for P90X. I remember the ads. It was next level trading, harder than anything you'll ever do. And it was. It was really difficult. And it began to whip me into shape. It kind of got me thinking about fitness. And it was good good for me. I'd been out of shape. I mean, I, we would hike and camp, but I was, I was pretty poor shape. Well, not poor shape. I was just not in great shape. And this kind of got me in shape. The problem with a, a series like this in 90 days is you do that one or two rounds and it begins to get spale. I was doing it for about a, for about a year and you know, I'd really gotten into it, but it was I was struggling to find the motivation to do it just because it, it was the same thing over and over again. When my business partner at the time, longtime friend, he suggested I do triathlon. I don't know if he was serious, but it set off the next chapter of my life in a big way. If you haven't already guessed it, I'm a little OCD. Triathlon became the dominant force in my life. I mean, when I say it became the dominant force in my life, it became the dominant force in my life. My, my wife will attest it. That's all I could think about. That's all I could talk about. I remember we had a discussion over a bike. I wanted a specific bike. And she's like, no, you're not going to spend that much money on a bike. <laughs> and so I didn't. I got a, a used bike. And it, it, it got me started, um, but it became a huge, huge part of my life. I remember spending a ton of time biking and running over on Pea Ridge Road in Shelby County, Kentucky. And I, I also remember like my wife going, well, why are you doing this? You don't swim. And that is true. I didn't swim. I had to learn how to swim. I remember getting books and, and reading and, and learning the basics. I was swimming one evening and these ladies who were a little older than me at the time they're like, why don't you join the master swim team? We meet in the morning at 5 a.m. I'm like, 5.30 in the morning or something. And I, I thought, I kind of looked at them like they were crazy. As a techie, generally, I'm, I'm a night I was a night owl. I was 2, 3 in the morning every night. Why, why would you get up at 5 in the morning? What is? Why would you ever do that? Str swimming was a bit of a struggle for me. And I, you read magazines and internet and they talk about, hey, the master's is a good chance to uh, get better at swimming, learn something about swimming. Somehow I woke myself up at 5.30 in the morning and went swimming with masters and it got me started. I uh, really kind of got into triathlon. Um, 
I was never a great swimmer early on, but I, I, I was getting better. <laughs> My first triathlon, I made it down to this, the end of the pool. Maybe it was the second one. You swim by yourself and everything's real calm, but it was just choppy, and I thought I was going to drown. I remember stopping, regrouping, but I continued on, and I, I made it through that first race. And I continued going to Masters. Uh, somewhere along that way, in the 2001 at range, 2000 range, USAT, USA Triathlon, uh, had classes on being a certified coach. And they were going to be in Louisville. I always wanted to be a coach. I could be a coach. Signed up for the classes. I really wasn't qualified in any real <laughs> way. But I signed up and, and became a USAT coach. I had coached a few... I. I ended up coaching a few of the fellow master swim teams to kind of get my feet wet. When the master's coach, another night owl, he just couldn't get up anymore. He ended up having to quit as the coach. Well, here I am, USAT coach. I could coach master's swimming. <laughs> I've been swimming, I guess, for about <coughs> two years at this point. Yeah, I can coach master's. I went and got myself certified as a USMS coach. I remember sitting in that class and like, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with this. What do you suggest? And they just kind of like laughed. <laughs> Said, you'll, you'll figure it out. <laughs> so I, here I was, another year later, the USMS certified coach and my own swim team in Shelbyville, Kentucky, the Clear Creek Masters. A couple years after that, I opened up a, a bicycle shop in Frankfurt. I decided that I wanted to do a triathlon shop and we needed one. And Frankfurt would be a good place. And I Hooked up with the uh, Shelby County bike owner. I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to kind of do this. And he's like, hey, why don't we just expand, create a bigger bike shop and expand to Frankfurt and we'll have Frankfurt and Shelbyville. I'm like, okay, well, we'll do that. And this venture lasted five years. It ended, ended poorly. Well, it was an adventure where it never really made any money. It mostly broke even. It was bike maintenance bike sales. But the problem was all the accessories with bikes were something you just didn't sell anymore. People just went online and bought it now with the advent of Amazon. And I knew I was in trouble when I had people I knew and you know acquaintances like, hey, you know, I bought this great deal on Amazon for some bike equipment that I could have gotten them. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I see how this is going. And you have this romantic idea that, hey, you have all these bikers, we, you know, you'd be working on good bikes. When in reality, all I ended up working on was really bad Walmart bikes. And Walmart really doesn't sell bicycles. They sell toys that just happen to have a bicycle form. And working on them would be just about as much fun as you would think when you have such a low-quality product. And there were a number of times people would damage them to some extent and be like, look, I could fix this for $150. Bucks. You know, if I want to buy new wheels, we're going to buy this. You can just go to Walmart and buy a new one for less than that. That's going to be your route. <laughs> this was not the venture I wanted, and I bowed out from that and started just kind of focused on the triathlon and, and swim coaching. It was during this tumultuous time, to say the least, that my son was born. As he got older and started playing sports, the need for volunteer coaches at the Y became apparent. And, of course, it didn't take me much convincing to sign up as a volunteer coach. I always wanted to coach. Uh, my son gravitated towards soccer, so all of my effort went into coaching soccer. Rec soccer was just wretched in Frankfurt and was on a downward spiral. 
spiral. We ended up moving my son to club soccer at King's Hammer, which was a which was a good choice. It was a much better environment than the rec soccer and what we could do once a week in that environment. It was at the same time that there was a gentleman, a couple people in Frankfurt that were interested in reforming a soccer club. As a coach at the Y, one of the ones who was doing fairly well and one of the better ones, I was kind of invited to some of their organizational meetings. And I ended up, unfortunately for me, my son, the first year they started was the year after my son. So my son couldn't play for the local team, so we kept him at King's Hammer. I ended up joining their effort and ending up my own soccer team that's a couple years younger than my son's. And now a year and a half later, I have my D soccer license and I'm doing the one thing I always wanted to do, which was coach football. <laughs> Unfortunately, not American football, but at least a team sport with set games and not kind of an individual sport. You know, I, I am definitely a coach. <laughs> the final area, final pillar for me is kind of the philosophical area. You know, I philosophy is one of those interesting th areas that, you know, people think of as this boring book analysis of words and stuff. And, and that's really not where philosophy derived from. Philosophy for the Greeks was just a way to live life. It wasn't just, is this, does this really exist? That was, that's not really what philosophy was in its origin. And I remember being introduced of philosophical concepts with one of my favorite all-time movies, Dead Poet Society. <coughs> Ever after seeing that, the whole concept of carpe diem, seize the day, stuck with me. I was always, you know, when I started journaling and, and trying to improve myself, I would always end with, hey, carpe diem, seize the day. At Lexmark, I was introduced to the self-help genre, which kind of pairs with philosophical concepts. And, the, and they had a Seven Habits of Highly Effective People course. This was a really important introduction for me into hey, I need to get better. And these are there are ways to get better. And the most important habit from that time, well, there's two really big habits that really struck me at the time, but the most important was the first habit, to be proactive. The book on it talks about the only freedom that we have as people is the gap between stimulus and response. It was Viktor Frankl who kind of came up with this gap when he was in the concentration camps during World War II as a, as a Jewish man and one who survived it when many of those around him passed away, he, he realized that you know, he could do good because he had the freedom to how to respond to this horrible situation. He could shut down or he could go on and make the world around him a better place. And that's what he did. And it, it's an important concept because by changing how we respond to things, we can change our environment. And when we start talking about Stoic philosophy, that is one of their big things as well. Control what you can control to avoid the things that you can't control. And really the only thing we control is our only freedom. It's how we respond to things, our mind. You know, as, as I grew as a coach, I've been, I'm also a Florida State fan from Bobby Bowden. I was a big kind of fan of Jimbo Fisher when he was kind of the head coach before he left it in shambles and was introduced to the Saban world and saving a philosophy where the process matters because you can't control winning and losing. All you can control is what you do, your effort. Again, falling into the stoic principles of control what you can control and let everything else go. And these different concepts all led me to the philosophy of stoicism, one in which 
I have found great benefit and one which I hope to live my life and I'm hoping to explore in greater detail within this podcast itself. Which kind of brings me back to the reason for the existence of this podcast. I want to explore the philosophy of living, you know, the good life, living day to day. How do how do we apply the concepts of the ideal to our daily life? How do we, you know, deal with the struggle of daily life while finding this path fulfillment? Hopefully we can struggle together on this and, and, and become better. Because my goal is to explore life. My goal is to explore kind of the best way to get through the life, at least through the eyes of myself as a father, a husband, a coach, a techie, and a triathlete. Man, and you know, I'm hoping we can have some fun while doing it as well. If you've enjoyed this video, hit the subscribe button because we're going to be discussing a lot of things. We're going to have a lot of fun doing it. I hope you'll subscribe and be in it. And if you've enjoyed it, you know, hit the like button. Give me five stars on iTunes. These are the things that help me to continue on this journey together. These are the things that will help me so we can continue this journey together. You know, and as always, have a great day if you want to. The choice is yours. Mm-hmm.